uh, it's always been a problem here getting people to turn out for interesting speakers. And partly it's because people are so busy, partly it's because they have a lot of choice of things to do, uh, and partly it's because uh, they aren't awake yet. Um, but so anyway, the downside is there are not enough people here, and I'm sorry that there aren't. The upside is that we get David to ourselves. Uh, and we get to, to talk to him, perhaps spend a little more time than we might otherwise uh, conversing with him uh, afterwards. Uh, David, as you, David Swanson, as you probably know, um, is the director of World Beyond War, a very important local organization, a, a very effective local organization um, that both does analysis and activism uh, in the cause of peace. Uh, he's from Charlottesville. He's had wonderful things to write, about, among other things, about the recent events in Charlottesville. He's also uh, he's a, a very a prolific writer, and his number of books are up here, including uh, War is a Lie and War is Never Just, and if you haven't read those, I'd strongly recommend you buy one and read it. It's, uh, they're very interesting books. Um, and I, the only other thing I'd say kind of about David, which I've mentioned to my students um, and other people, is that um, David appears at a, t at, at a time when it's barely in, very much in need of people who think and talk and act uh, as he does. Uh, I, th I would say even desperately uh, in need. Um, and he plays a role, he says things and does things, and plays a role that reminds me in some ways very much of, since I've been speaking with my students about this, of the role uh, of abolitionism in American history. Um, David's an abolitionist. He's a, he wants to abolish war. Um, and if one remembers how the abolitionists were treated in American history, um, they were considered uh, extremists. Uh, they were considered uh, even crazy um, and considered to, to be people who were troublemakers and who were uh, kind of spoiling the consensus. Um, going too far. They went too far for Lincoln. They went too far for, way too far for Andrew Jackson, uh, the slave owner. Um, and, uh, and so for a long time, uh, really from the time uh, Garrison began publishing The Liberator for the next uh, almost 30 years, they were considered people sort of on the, on the fringe of the American politics, except that in the worst possible way, that is to say in connection with a war, uh, they became absolutely central to American politics. And the argument they started is still going on today. It was going on in Charlottesville um, a, a few weeks ago about what, the, what that war was about. Uh, so the fact that David is uh, an abolitionist, and in some ways he reminds me of Garrison, um, although he's more moderate and more temperate, and is, and I think also probably more convincing 
to people who aren't already convinced uh, in his speech. Um, but that's a, it's it's a, such a vital role to be playing. Uh, it makes people think in ways that they haven't been thinking before, and it raises he raises the same question that the abolitionists raise, not the question of slavery per se, but the question of when you have a a form of violence that's so much a part of the system and so long, has been so for so long a part of the system that it's simply accepted as the way things are. The notion that uh, people shouldn't be property was struck a lot of people, or should never be property, struck a lot of people as uh, nuts uh, when it was proposed because it was so because chattel slavery was so well ensconced in law, in custom, in, uh, in our culture, and not to mention the economy. Now, uh, arms uh, production, war production, and war making plays the same kind of role in our society as slavery did to me, as slavery did then. It's accepted as something, well, of course you can't do without it. David challenges that. Uh, the way the abolitionists challenge slavery. And for that, I think we are all very grateful and um, very interested to hear what he has to say today. So thank you for being here, David. Thank you. Um, thank you, Richard, and thank you, Samantha, um, for setting this up. I, uh, uh, I'm sorry that I didn't promote this more. I, I think I thought it was a college class, you know. Um, I'm, I'm speaking at the University of Pennsylvania in a week or so, and they told me explicitly, don't tell anybody it's just students of the University of Pennsylvania. So um, I may have confused the two events a little bit. Um, but uh, thank you all for being here and hopefully participating. Now that you're here, you have to, you're going to have to be part of a discussion, I'm afraid. Um, and I will give, uh, uh, I, I will I prepared some remarks. Uh, originally, I had heard I should speak for an hour and then take questions for an hour. Um, I'm not going to talk for an hour. Um, the, the longer and possibly much longer version of, of what I'm about to say will be on davidswanson.org and worldbeyondwar.org and warsacrime.org this evening if you want to read it. Um, uh, there won't be much there that I haven't uh, uh, posted there millions of times in the past. Um, a, a little bit new, I think, because I want to talk about racism uh, here as well as war, and I don't always talk about racism. Um, world Beyond War is not a local organization, not here and not anywhere else. It's a worldwide organization uh, with leaders in dozens of countries around the world and growing uh, crew of volunteers organizing people uh, around the world and people having signed a peace pledge uh, at worldbeyondwar.org in over 150 countries, um, hoping someday to get to 175, which is where the, uh, you know, they thank the U.S. troops for watching the sports events from on TV. Um, we want to, you know, surpass that number if we can. Um, so uh, thank you for being here. Raise your hand uh, if you think we should end all racism. Unanimous. This is good. With this crowd, I can actually count and identify. How about if you think we should end and eliminate and abolish all war? Okay, so this is, you know, not only the people who magically find out about the event that I'll, you know, hear from a dozen people tomorrow, why didn't you tell me, but 
this is also not a representative uh, group uh, from the U.S. public. Um, typically, uh, I feel almost certain I could get a lot more hands on the first question than on the second. Uh, that is, the public in the United States, uh, just based on those words with no elaboration, is going to be much more willing to say end all racism than end all war. Um, and even though I think, and we can talk about this if you want, that the, the notion that we live in a democracy is largely fraudulent, uh, I think that public opinion actually does largely indicate where we are headed as a nation on both racism uh, and war, um, in part because activism still can have some influence uh, in the United States, in part because government propaganda influences public opinion, uh, and in part because education and the ideas that are everywhere in our culture influence both government behavior and public opinion. Um, I, I think if I ask about child abuse or slavery or rape or torturing kittens, uh, I think I can get every hand in the room on abolishing quite a number of things. Uh, Feel free to speak up if you're in favor of any of those things I've mentioned. Um, and, and feel free to interrupt me at any point here. Um, so, so there are things that we think should be entirely eliminated, um, but for much of the public, they are not the things that powerful interests are constantly informing us are ineliminable, uh, and those include war. Um, so I, I want to suggest here that it is possible to favor ending racism and yet not realize all the places that racism exists and that it's possible to oppose ending all war because of a failure to recognize alternatives to war. And I also want to suggest that while racism or war could be ended while leaving the other one in place, the two are so closely interlocked that one without the other would look very different from how we know it today. So I drove up here from Charlottesville, a town lately overrun by Nazis and other racists from around the country, come to defend a giant heroic equestrian statue of Robert E. Lee, uh, which stands in the middle of my town, um, as well as a similar one of Stonewall Jackson. Those statues are now covered with giant black tarps, but they remain standing. Raise your hand if you can tell me why they remain standing. Yes? Well, they, they remind us about our heritage. <laughs> Not mine, but it's... Uh, yes, but it's... And uh, people uh, treasure the memory of these heroic... Yes, so the statues have defenders, the statues have opponents. The city government has voted to remove them. Why are they not removed? Yeah, so for a long time, for months, this was sort of the fraudulent lead argument of the defenders of the statues. It would cost money to take down the statue. And the city pretty well quieted that argument down when they decided to sell the statue and have the purchaser pay to come and get it. Um, so it, there, there is actually a reason that they're still standing there. Um, and it's not because of a public vote. 
It's not because the defenders of the statues own more guns than the opponents of the statues. Uh, it's not because the racists are winning or they're smarter than we are. It's not because moving the statues costs money. It's not because the Charlottesville City Council wants them there. Those fine people have voted to get rid of them. Um, they are covered with giant garbage bags of shame, but they're standing there. Some of you may have heard why, if I remind you, um, but most of you probably have not heard the reason why they are still standing there. Um, and it's because it's a reason that is thoughtlessly accepted by all parties. It has nothing to do with the arguments of the Nazis and the KKK and nothing to do with the arguments of Black Lives Matter or any of the opponents of the statues. When something is universally accepted, it's not talked about much. Right? The vast majority of countries on Earth are just putting together a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. How much debate have you heard on that in the US Congress? Right? The, go back to uh, the war that Lee and Jackson fought in. The North and the South had a disagreement over slavery, but for the most part, not over slavery in existing territories. It was the universally accepted agreement that the US must be an expanding empire and then the disagreement over whether to have slavery or freedom in the expanded territories that disastrously led to uh, mass slaughter and destruction. So uh, I, I, in terms of, I'm cutting out a big uh, section here about the Civil War because once you mention the Civil War to most crowds you have to explain why it might not be the best idea to have another one. Um, but you know, Five days after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, as you may or may not know, the U.S. government took legal actions to finally end slavery, to counter possible criticism from Germany or Japan. Five years after World War II, a group of former Nazis, some of whom had used slave labor in caves in Germany, were invited to set up shop in Alabama to work on creating new weapons and technologies, and they found the people of Alabama where slavery had existed up until that date, extremely forgiving of their past deeds. And this team of rocket scientists, of course, would later form the core of a new thing called NASA. And it, of course, took a nonviolent movement to finally end Jim Crow, and the 13th Amendment allows slavery for convicts to this day, etc. Uh, so had the US ended s slavery without a war, it might have been possible to end it with less division. Uh, ending racism would have remained a long uh, process, but that process might have been given a head start rather than a huge hurdle. And, and so my point on the Civil War is not so much that our ancestors could have done something different. They were nowhere near doing so. The North couldn't have done it without the South, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but that their choice should not be one we look to as a model going forward, knowing what we know of war and the risks of war and what we know of the tools of nonviolence. If tomorrow we were to wake up and discover that most people are outraged uh, by mass incarceration, for example, or some other evil, we wouldn't go choose a bunch of fields, kill each other off in large numbers, and then pass legislation to end mass incarceration. We would try to jump straight to passing the legislation. So, so why are the statues still there? This, these miseducational statues put up 60 years after the Civil War ended against the explicit wishes of some of the now dead people who are depicted in the statues. Uh, the reason is that Virginia, like some states, has a state law that bans taking down any war monument. 
and the courts have yet to rule on whether that law applies retroactively to statues that were there when that law was created, a law that does not state it's retroactive, and typically laws don't get to be retroactive. And no movement has developed to overturn that law. Uh, nobody's even talking about it. Uh, we do not, by the way, have a law in Virginia that bans taking down peace monuments. You would be hard-pressed, in fact, to find a peace monument to take down if you wanted to try. Um, Charlottesville has several monuments around town and on the campus of UVA, and they are almost all war monuments. 99% of our history in Charlottesville, as typical in the United States, all of our activism, activism being something the president of the University of Virginia just denounced in an email 10 minutes ago. She prefers, apparently, discussion and debate led by hand-picked invited guests to the university, uh, but not activism. Uh, all of our artistry, scholarship, athletics, music, industry, architecture, education, all of our non-war glories and tragedies of past centuries and decades is absent. <laughs> from, you know, monumental uh, glorification in our parks and streets. Uh, so if you look around Charlottesville for the racist war monuments to take down and the non-racist war monuments to leave up, you run into another big problem other than the law. Who can tell me what it is? The customs of the people, yes, that's fair enough, yes. But if you, if you looked at all the war monuments of various wars all around Charlottesville and made a list of the racist ones to take down and the non-racist ones to leave up, what problems might arise? They're all the same. Would be any on the second list? The second list is empty, thank you. There aren't any non-racist war monuments in Charlottesville. We have monuments to the genocide of Native Americans. We have monuments to a war that killed almost four million Vietnamese plus uh, Laotians and Cambodians, although those were not the words typically used to describe the people being killed in those wars. We have a monument from World War I, a war explicitly uh, marketed as a race war against the evil race of the Huns. Uh, we have almost nothing but war monuments, but they're all racist. In fact, it turns out that it's actually pretty hard to get people to support the mass slaughter of human beings. It is much easier to get them to support the mass slaughter of creatures who are subhuman. Uh, and so if you, if you say that, as, as I think in most rooms I would get uh, in response to my initial questions, if you say we should end all racism but we shouldn't end all war, you're really proposing a new kind of war, unlike anything we've seen before. Uh, we haven't had wars uh, that didn't involve racism or something very similar to racism. Uh, so when former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright said that killing a half million children was worth it, whatever it may have been, uh, when, you know, she meant dark-skinned, Arabic-speaking, Muslim children. When President Obama said he was really good at killing people as he bombed eight different countries, as candidate Donald Trump promised to kill more of those people's families, and as a debate moderator last year asked candidates for U.S. president whether they'd be willing to kill hundreds and thousands of innocent children as part of their basic duties, everybody meant and understood foreign people, dark children, creatures of the wrong religion and language and dress not because the U.S. government wants to pursue genocide, although sometimes it or parts of it clearly do. 
John McCain this week uh, threatened extinction for North Korea. And not because the weapons companies make more money if non-white people die, but because public support for bombing and shooting and torturing human beings is much harder to generate than is public support for waging war on those who are not thought of as really human. Look at how the war on Afghanistan is labeled the longest war in US history. What's wrong with that statement? The wars on Native Americans are not counted as real wars because they aren't counted as real people. Uh, it, you know, this is a problem. I, I watched a documentary about the 1893 Chicago World's Fair recently that noted that at the time Germany and France were great friends, the U.S. was great friends with Muslim nations of the Middle East, and the U.S. was not engaged in any, quote, multinational wars. Now, what you may ask is a non-multinational war. Presumably, it is a war against people who don't count as having a nation. The massacre of Wounded Knee happened during the planning of the World's Fair. The Apache were also far from giving up. The Apache, like many other Native Americans, by the way, are now the name of a U.S. military weapon used to attack new enemies often described as Natives and Indians. Killing Osama bin Laden was called Operation Geronimo. The, the U.S. Senate uh, an hour or so ago voted down 61 to 31 a proposal to repeal the so-called authorizations for the use of military force that have served as uh, legalistic excuses for 16 years of war in Afghanistan and elsewhere. The racism of these wars comes home through media and entertainment, through the actions of some returning veterans, through the military training now given to police departments by the U.S. and Israeli militaries. The racism at home fuels the wars through public support, through torture techniques exported from U.S. prisons, and through willingness to give up rights in the name of pursuing enemies. So it makes perfect sense for those pursuing peace to also pursue the end of racism. Similarly, it makes sense for those opposing racism to address the problem of war something addressed very well in the platform of Black Lives Matter, which I recommend everyone read if you haven't. Raise your hand if you know something, anything at all, about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Must get every hand, yes. Thank you. Um, he said we needed to go after three evil things together. One of them was racism, one of them was militarism. Raise your hand if you can tell me the third one. Sorry? Poverty here. Yeah, it's related. Economic inequality is related. Capitalism? Capitalism's even closer, I'd say. His, his word uh, most often was extreme materialism. What is extreme materialism? I'd say it's, it's pursuing riches over friendships, it's conspicuous consumption. It's brand consciousness, it's shopping for fun and therapy, it's honoring the hoarding of vast filthy piles of wealth, it's electing people president who came to be, claim to be better than you because they're rich, it's allowing a concentration of wealth beyond medieval levels, letting single individuals hoard money that could otherwise transform the world for the better and praising them for it, shunning any collective good even when more efficient, even when it makes everyone better off, 
things like universal health care, education, retirement, and everything else shunned by the Mercatus Center of George Mason University, formerly of UVA? Or how about this, the willful destruction of the Earth's climate, air, soil, and water for the short-term monetary profits of a small number of people. If that's not extreme materialism, I don't know what is. How about tax cuts for billionaires as an answer to hurricanes? So these evil triplets, as Dr. King called them, relate to each other. Wars are fought for, among other things, profits. Racism is fueled by, among other things, economic insecurity and greed. Extreme materialism seeps in to fill a void in lives lacking the pursuit of peace, justice, community, generosity, and the curiosity needed to learn from those who are different. And its worst impacts are imposed on people and communities with the least wealth and power. So is it possible to get rid of racism and war and perhaps extreme materialism? Well, we can point to numerous hunter-gatherer societies, as well as modern, that have lived without war or extreme materialism. For obvious reasons of their isolation, we can't claim they've lived without racism. Yet we can point to countless examples of people living without apparent racism, and of people of every description risking their lives to help end racism. There has never been anything found in human biology to mandate racism for all or any segment of our population. Children are not born blind to superficial features of human appearance any more than they are to behavioral differences, but whether they attribute racist significance to those features depends entirely on whether anyone teaches them to do so. Therefore, there is no reason grounded in genetics to prevent living without racism. The same is true for war. War has only been around for the most recent fraction of our existence as a species. We did not evolve with it. During these most recent 10,000 years or so, it has been sporadic. Some societies have known war, some have known it and abandoned it. Just as some of us find it hard to imagine a world without war or murder, some human societies have found it hard to imagine a world without those things. A man in Malaysia as slave raiders were pursuing his friends and relatives and family was asked, why not shoot them? Why not shoot them with those darts and arrows that you use to shoot animals? And he had no response other than because it would kill them. He was unable to comprehend that anyone could choose to kill a human being. It is easy to suspect him of lacking imagination but how easy is it for us to imagine a culture in which virtually nobody would choose to kill and war would be unknown? Easy or hard to imagine or to create, it is not a matter of DNA. It is clearly a matter of culture. According to myth, war is, quote, natural. Yet a great deal of conditioning is needed to prepare most people to take part in war. A great deal of mental suffering is common among people who have taken part in it and not a single person is known to have suffered deep moral regret or post-traumatic stress disorder from war deprivation. War in human history up to this point has not correlated with population density or resource scarcity. It is not created by powers beyond our easy control. The idea that climate change and the resulting catastrophes will inevitably generate wars could be a self-fulfilling prophecy it is not a prediction based on facts. 
the growing and looming climate crisis is a good reason for us to outgrow our culture of war so that we are prepared to handle crises by other, less destructive means. And redirecting some or all of the vast sums of money and energy that go into war and war preparation to the urgent work of protecting the climate could make a significant difference both by ending one of our most environmentally destructive activities and by funding a transition to sustainable practices. In contrast, the mistaken belief that wars must follow climate chaos will encourage investment in military preparedness, thus exacerbating the climate crisis and making more likely the compounding of one type of catastrophe with another. Human societies have been known to abolish institutions, as Richard uh, mentioned, including slavery, institutions that were considered permanent. Human sacrifice, trial by ordeal, blood feuds, dueling, the death penalty, and many others. In some societies, some of these practices have been largely eradicated but remain illicitly in the shadows and on the margins. But those exceptions don't tend to convince most people that complete eradication is impossible, only that it hasn't been achieved in that society. The idea of eliminating hunger from the globe was once considered ludicrous. Now it is widely understood that hunger could be abolished and for a tiny fraction of what is spent on war. While nuclear weapons have not all been dismantled and eliminated, there exists a popular and growing movement working to do just that. But what would a world without racism or war look like? There's no way to accurately predict, but I can propose one way it could look. Without racism, we would have more community, more security, more love and enlightenment and less fear and resentment. But without racism, people struggling with poverty, injustice, and insignificance would have to find somewhere else to vent their anger and blame, or some way to overcome it, or they'd have to reinvent racism and other similar hatreds. Without war, we would have more global community, more security, less fear, and violence. But without war, we would have the problem of a gigantic pile of money, almost too big to possibly figure out what to do with. We hear about the wealth of the billionaires sometimes when people make enough noise in the streets, no matter what the president of UVA says about activism, but you could tax all of their wealth away once and it'd be gone. And I absolutely think we should do that. But you wouldn't have anything like the kind of money you could take away from the US military's spending each and every year after year after year. And tiny fractions of it could transform this country and the world and it was doubled after the events of 16 years ago this week, and we are much the worse off for that. Now, people don't engage in racism simply because they are financially insecure, and such contributing factors to racism don't excuse it. But people who are living well and securely in a relatively egalitarian society don't have to blame any problems that they don't have on other racial groups. So if you're going to end war, why not also create universal health care, education through college, retirement, vacation, unemployment insurance, or basic income, etc.? And not create those things for whites only, as so many government programs were in the United States in the last century. And not create them for other groups only, even as reparations, but create them equally for all with no bureaucracy needed to identify the worthy poor. The fact that historical injustices have left us with a vast racial wealth gap is a problem, and some form of reparations is probably part of the best answer. 
Affirmative action, as it has been done, is also a problem insofar as it has created resentment among whites. Basic human rights like education should not be parceled out as weak reparations. Even aid to the poor creates vicious resentments, especially when combined with racist thinking that falsely imagines the poor as being of a particular race, and especially when combined with the ideology of a place like the Mercatus Center at George Mason University that sees assistance as theft and suffering as irrelevant or educational. All of this is transformed if we consider the possibility of using all or part of the US military budget for something else. If college and health care were guaranteed to all and the land of opportunity actually offered the opportunity to improve that some other nations do, reparations of past wrongs would be less resisted, including perhaps even reparations to people like Iraqis whose countries have been damaged or destroyed. We are often distracted from the fact that war is the primary thing our country does. War and militarism and bases and ships and missiles and sanctions and nuclear threats and hostilities make up the filter through which much of the rest of the world, that other 96% of humanity, sees this 4%. The U.S. Congress chooses how to spend a great deal of money each year and chooses to put 54% of it into war and preparations for war. The wars demonstrably increase rather than reduce or eliminate anti-U.S. sentiment and violence. They endanger us rather than protect us, and those dangers may last in foreign lands at least as long as the U.S. Civil War is lasting in this one. Gallup polling finds the U.S. widely considered the greatest threat to peace in the world. The wars are a top cause of death and injury in the world and a top cause of famines and disease epidemics and refugee crises that cause massive additional suffering. But war kills most by diverting resources. Small fractions of U.S. military spending could end starvation, provide clean water, end diseases, even make major strides toward ending the use of fossil fuels worldwide. Military spending also reduces jobs in comparison to other spending or not taxing working people in the first place. The U.S. military consumes more petroleum than most entire countries and has a bigger budget than most governments and about the size of all other militaries combined. The U.S. military destroys areas of the earth on an unfathomable scale, including back home where it is re responsible for 69% of environmental disaster Superfund sites. Yes, the top destroyer of the U.S. natural environment is the U.S. military. By the way, we are organizing a flotilla of kayaks to the Pentagon on September 17th, this coming Sunday, to hold up giant banners in front of the Pentagon protesting its role in climate change. And you do not need your own kayak. You do not need any skills. You do not need to know how to swim. It is about four feet deep. Uh, you just need to sign up at worldbeyondwar.org or backbonecampaign.org. We're also planning a big conference at American University, September 22nd to 24th, bringing together top environmental and peace activists. And you can come if you sign up at worldbeyondwar.org. While Trump threatens nuclear war, scientists say that a single nuclear bomb could cause climate catastrophe. If we aren't there already, we could be beyond the point of no return. And a small number of nuclear bombs could block out the sun, kill crops, and starve us. There is no such thing as threatening nuclear war on someone other than yourself. 
And no, the nukes are not less damaging if Congress authorizes their use. The erosion we are seeing in our civil liberties, the mass surveillance, the militarized police, these are symptoms of a criminal enterprise called war. It fuels and is fueled by racism, bigotry, hatred, and violence. The excuses made for it are so weak and its horrors so inexcusable that the top killer of US participants in war is suicide. And yet, Trump proposes to move another $50 billion from just about everything good and decent into war. And the Democrats run around denouncing the supposed cuts without mentioning the existence of the military or the fact that it's not cuts at all but moving money into war. The Democratic congressional candidates that have lost all of their special elections this year to warmongering Republicans have in each case presented platforms that did not mention any foreign policy whatsoever. The same goes for their new hero, Randy Bryce, and the progressive caucuses, dream budget, increases military spending. And of course, a certain former senator from New York who seems to still be running for the 2016 Democratic presidential nomination never met a war she didn't love. Even Bernie Sanders just went on Stephen Colbert's show and rattled off his list of progressive goals three different times without ever mentioning war or peace, just as he had done thousands of times before. Even the question of whether to end or continue current wars just doesn't come up. During the campaign, Senator Sanders said that he thought Saudi Arabia should, quote, get its hands dirty and pay for more of the wars. As if Saudi Arabia's hands weren't drenched in blood, as if it weren't funding wars on both the same and opposite sides as the US already, and as if wars were some sort of philanthropy that the world depends upon. Senator Sanders falsely as well as immorally defends the murderous F-35 airplane as a jobs program for Vermont where it will damage the hearing and the brains of the children in the school where it takes off over. And when Senator Sanders is asked, how will you pay for all of your ponies, ponies being Hillary Clinton's word for basic human rights, he doesn't reply, I'm going to make a slight reduction in military spending. Instead, he gives a complex answer that produced endless media screaming about tax increases. Contrast that with the popular performance of the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Jeremy Corbyn, who explains that the wars are illegal and counterproductive. So we have to move the best and the worst of the politicians in the US, and we have to do so with a popular movement that changes our culture. Um, so I go on at some length about alternatives to war and why war is not needed for defense and how we can use nonviolent institutions uh, and movements for defense and for prevention uh, and where those have already been successful both against tyranny and against uh, invasion and occupation. Everything's the key. I could go on for hours and hours and think everything's the key. That's why I want to get to you know what you guys want. But if that is something you want, then um, the alternatives are. The, it's hard for those of us who aren't as informed as you are to think what else we could be doing. And I think that that's a, a very important thing for yeah. us to think. Okay. What else? What else would work? And how would we do it? So. So I'll go back to some of this and someone else can jump in and tell me to stop. But um, uh, 
it, it, typically someone will object that ending war and ending racism have a big difference because with racism you can end it one person at a time. Whereas with war, the whole world supposedly has to end war in the same instant or some other evil person will pursue war while you're not prepared for war. Or as somebody emailed me last week, uh, if you're not willing to nuke North Korea, you better get prepared to speak North Korean. Uh, you know, which, by the way, is not a language. Uh, that, so that, that sort of statement, um, uh, I, I think, would make a lot more sense than it does, although it would still be nonsense, if it were spoken outside of the United States. Because the United States so dominates the field of war that the notion that it has to wait for someone else to start eliminating war can't hold up. The US not only leads in the sale of war weapons to the world, including the regions of the world where most of the wars are and no weapons are manufactured, it also leads the world in its own spending on wars and primarily on war preparations, spending about as much as the rest of the world put together, about a trillion dollars across numerous departments. Uh, whereas countries in the world that top $10 billion in military spending, that is, are over 1%, of US military spending, number 19 or 20 countries in the world. Of those, eight are NATO members, eight more are US allies with US troops stationed in them. Uh, and these are nations that the US actively lobbies to spend more on wars, not less. Were the US to take the lead in scaling back military spending, it would spark a reverse arms race. There is no question. The United States could also further that agenda by scaling back its wars and its permanent basing. At least 95% of military bases in the world that are on foreign soil are US bases on foreign soil. Nobody else does this. Since World War II, the US military has directly killed some 20 million human beings, overthrown at least 36 governments, interfered in at least 82 foreign elections non-militarily, but obviously not in the bad Russian way, attempted to assassinate over 50 foreign leaders, and dropped bombs on people in over 30 countries. The United States is responsible for the deaths of some 5 million people in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and over a million just since 2003, just in Iraq. Um, for the past 16 years, systematically destroying a region of the globe, bombing Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, Syria, not to mention the Philippines. Special forces now in two-thirds of the world's countries, not very special, and non-special forces in three-quarters of them. Uh, so for the U.S. to make a move towards scaling back the war making would have a major impact. Um, And it would look more and more realistic as it progressed, but even more as we recognized that war isn't needed for so-called defense. Uh, studies like Erica Chenoweth's have established that nonviolent resistance to tyranny is far more likely to succeed, and the success far more likely to be lasting than with violent resistance. So if you look at something like the nonviolent revolution in Tunisia in 2011, we might find that it meets as many criteria as any other situation for a so-called just war, except that it wasn't a war. And you wouldn't go back in time and argue for a strategy less likely to succeed, but likely to cause a lot more pain and death. Perhaps doing so might constitute a good just war argument, 
perhaps a just war argument could be even be made anachronistically for a 2011 US intervention into Tunisia to bring democracy, apart from the US uh, obvious inability to do such a thing and the guaranteed catastrophe that would have resulted. But once you've done a revolution without all the killing and dying, it can no longer make sense to propose all the killing and dying. Not if a thousand new Geneva Conventions were created and no matter the, the serious imperfections of the nonviolent success. Despite the relative scarcity of examples thus far of nonviolent resistance to foreign occupation, there are those already beginning to claim a pattern of success. Here's a quote from Stephen Zunis, quote, nonviolent resistance has successfully challenged foreign military occupation. During the first Palestinian Intifada in the 80s, much of the subjugated population effectively became self-governing entities through massive non-cooperation and the creation of alternative institutions, forcing Israel to allow for the creation of the Palestine Authority and self-governance for most of the urban areas of the West Bank. Nonviolent resistance in the occupied Western Sahara has forced Morocco to offer an autonomy proposal which, while still falling well short of Morocco's obligation to grant the Saharis their right of self-determination, at least acknowledges that the territory is not simply another part of Morocco. In the final years of German occupation of Denmark and Norway during World War II, the Nazis effectively no longer controlled the population. Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia freed themselves from Soviet occupation through nonviolent resistance prior to the USSR's collapse. In Lebanon, a nation ravaged by war for decades, 30 years of Syrian domination was ended through a large-scale nonviolent uprising in 2005. And Mariupol became the largest city in the liberated uh, the largest city to be liberated from control by Russian-backed rebels in Ukraine, not by bombings and artillery strikes by the Ukrainian military, but when thousands of unarmed steel workers marched peacefully into occupied sections of its downtown area and drove out the armed separatists." End quote. One might look for potential in numerous examples of re resistance to the Nazis, and in German resistance to the French invasion of the Ruhr in, in 1923, or perhaps in the one-time success of the Philippines and the ongoing success of Ecuador in evicting U.S. military bases. And of course, the Gandhian example of booting the British out of India. But the far more numerous examples of nonviolent success over domestic tyranny also provide a guide toward future action. Well, what about claims that we need not just defensive wars, but humanitarian wars? Well, we have yet to see one that benefited humanity. So there's that problem. And supporters of humanitarian wars are still far outnumbered by supporters of racist wars. And the fact that both groups support the same wars should worry both groups, by the way. Well, if not war, then what? Diplomacy, cooperation, aid, the rule of law, arbitration, mediation, truth and reconciliation, conversion to prosperous, peaceful economies. We have started building the needed institutions and practices, and much more is needed. Raise your hand if you think war is sometimes legal. Legal, in accordance with law. Raise your hand if you think war is always legal. How about always illegal? People who didn't raise a hand, what is your view on the legality of war? <laughs> Don't we always point to 
being tried out on North Korea as we speak. Uh, war was banned in 1928, uh, and again, but with loopholes in 1945. But none of the current wars qualify for the loopholes. Um, so we can talk about that at any length you guys want, but uh, developing under an understanding of that, I think, is a necessary uh, step. Um, also illegal is threatening war, even if you call it fire and fury. Uh, it is a crime to threaten war. Um, now, there is a medieval doctrine called just war theory that has held on in the West beyond any of the rest of the bizarre worldview of the people who created it. And its criteria for making a war just are either, each of them, either unmeasurable, impossible, or amoral. For some future war to actually be just, it would have to be so just as to outweigh all the killing and destruction it did, plus all the unjust wars inevitably created by keeping the institution of war around, plus the risk of nuclear apocalypse maintained by the institution of war, plus the murderous impact of the diversion of trillions of dollars every year into military spending and into lost economic opportunities, and trillions more into property destruction by war, plus all the environmental destruction, the government secrecy, the erosion of civil liberties, the corrosion of our culture with violence and bigotry, etc. Nothing in the history of the world has ever been that just, and nothing can be. I think in many cases, it does not take that much to dissuade racists, which is why Trump's apparent sanctioning of racist violence, promising to pay legal bills for thugs at rallies is so damaging. People can be shown directly that others that they despise are intelligent, generous, friendly, and on their side. People can be taught that racism is unacceptable. That can be all it takes. I think we also need great efforts put into anti-racist, or if you prefer, pro-humanist education, and rallies, and counter-rallies. We need to, uh, I think, have total respect for the First Amendment rights of speech and assembly, but they don't include the right to assemble armed. They don't include the right to assemble threatening violence. We need a larger, disciplined, nonviolent movement against racism that invites those espousing racism uh, to discuss with us where they're coming from, even while we insist that they be held to the rule of law. The, uh, the daily newspaper in Charlottesville this morning, for the first time, uh, finally printed an article that said, it's possible First Amendment rights could exist without weapons. You know, <laughs> I have been to countless peace marches where you couldn't have a sign on a stick. You had to have a hollow cardboard tube to protect people, you know. But, you know, they've just, they just opened the door a crack to the possibility that you could have First Amendment rights without carrying, uh, you know, semi-automatic weapons. Um, now, people can be shown similar things about war. Every time that we're told we urgently need a war on Iran and public pressure helps prevent it and the world does not end, we can ask people to notice that and to question the urgent cries to start that same war the next time they arise. And yet some will still imagine that a war might be needed or that once an unneeded war is begun, they must cheer for it or be on the side of the enemy. So when we think of ending war, people imagine ending it only by defeating enemies, not by turning enemies into friends. And they, and they think of ending racism in 
in similar ways in many cases. And this will not work any more than punching Nazis will end Nazism or shooting guns at hurricanes will turn climate change into a liberal myth. I, I don't know if you're aware, but tens of thousands of people have signed up to, to join in shooting their guns at the hurricane in Florida. Um, it, it, it exactly parallels U.S. foreign policy on North Korea. Um, so uh, among the sections that I have not uh, given you of these endless remarks uh, it is you know, a section giving my top 12 reasons that uh, World War II was not the greatest justice uh, war ever in the history of the universe, um, um, which you may or may not need as you all raise your hands for all the right things to begin with. But um, thanks for coming, and I'd be glad to try to uh, engage in any discussion. Um, I saw at least three hands go up. Do you want to put one of them up again? Uh, well, I did. Uh, I wanted to share my personal experience with you and get your idea. Uh, I'm a Vietnam veteran. I went into uh, the Navy in 63, uh, right at the time we were involved with gunboat clashes and so forth, and then escalated beyond that point. We were all told at the time reason we're there is because the North was trying to make the South a communist nation. We were there to defend democracy and, and so forth, <coughs> and a, a, a good government in the South, which didn't turn out to be all that good, but um, it was in a, went a long time, like 13 years, long after I was discharged from the Navy. Given the, the reality that there's a, a northern part of the one nation that wants to take over the southern part of the nation and make it communist, uh, I ended up uh, after my time uh, feeling that it shouldn't have been our war to begin with. It shouldn't have been uh, decided by warfare. I think well I mean the, the 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 further you go back in history and throw out you know theoretical options roads that could have been taken the further you go back the more of them there are right so when they were disastrously ending World War One at the Palace of Versailles in a manner that wise people predicted on the spot and in some cases down to the date would create World War II. Uh, a guy named Ho Chi Minh asked to come and speak with Woodrow Wilson as an admirer of the myths he had heard about U.S. democracy uh, and Woodrow Wilson wanted nothing to do with that little, I'm not sure which racist term he used, uh, but you know 
he used a racist term, and he wanted nothing to do with Ho Chi Minh. Uh, you know, so there, there are opportunities uh, that multiply the further you go back in the past. Um, but the U.S. had no business being in Asia with killing forces in any way to begin with, uh, had no business supporting French colonialism in Vietnam had no business, you want to go back further, turning Japan into a military empire, albeit one that uh, rebelled against daddy. Uh, you know, there, there was absolutely no excuse for creating that situation uh, and for assassinating leaders and installing other leaders and picking who's going to be in charge of other people for their own good uh, or you know we shouldn't you know let a country be wrong but run by the wrong people just just because the people of that country are misguided as Henry Kissinger uh, put it in in regard to Chile I believe um, but you know whether whether Kennedy was going to, to end it um, in you know, what we now know was its relatively early stages uh, or not, and I'm inclined to think uh, that he was, um, uh, it could have been ended uh, and ended for the better for all concerned, uh, including, of course, uh, the millions of people killed, uh, you know, 3.8 million according to the latest Harvard study, which in the analysis of Nick Terse in his book, Kill Anything That Moves, is a wild understatement, uh, and this doesn't count hundreds of thousands in Laos and Cambodia each. Um, you know, this, this is what we have a monument to in Charlottesville, and have monuments around the United States. And if you, you know, if you want to put up monuments to wars, uh, you know, better than putting up Robert E. Lee on a horse 60 years later in the cause of white supremacy when Robert E. Lee didn't want any monuments, is putting up a, a monument with names of the dead, like the Vietnam Wall. But if you put the names of all the dead, that monument would stretch all the way down the mall and through the Congress. You know, that, that's the kind of monument we should have, uh, is a monument that mourns and regrets and proposes to do better. Um, I'm, I'm on the advisory board of a group called Veterans for Peace, and the vast majority of them are veterans of that war um, and are doing some of the best work uh, for peace. Um, and many of the speakers we'll have in, uh, on September 22nd and 24th at American University will be veterans of that and many other wars and veteran whistleblowers like Chelsea Manning who will be there who nobody has yet seen at any public event um, so you you may want to come but when I when I wrote a book called war is a lie and I looked through US and other countries history at lies that were used to start wars including you know the, the Gulf of Tonkin non-incident and and to continue wars and to make wars look better after the fact and I, I didn't list them all because the book would be this big, but I put categories, types of lies, so that we can better spot lies going forward. I, I, I looked at some of the discussions inside the White House during the war on Vietnam, uh, you know, from the, from the Pentagon Papers and other sources, uh, and uh, they actually had discussions over what lie they should use with the public in the coming weeks and months to keep the war going and escalate it, and discussions of what lie they should tell themselves. I mean, th there was like unstated universal agreement that the war would keep going. 
but they wanted, they tried to come up with a consensus of what they should tell themselves and had discussions on that, you know, with the clear decision that they were going to think of something. And then separately, they had a you know, further discussion what lies they should tell the public. This was the same with, you'll recall that uh, Bush Jr. White House insiders came out and said that they settled on weapons of mass destruction as the excuse for the war on Iraq because it was the one they could get the most consensus on. Right, so first they decide on the war, then they try to come up with the best excuse that they can get the most consensus on and go with that one, you know. Um, and obviously for decades, uh, the, the communist threat was a, played a leading role in all of this propaganda. And when that ended, uh, you know, it, and there was this threat to start defunding the wars because they were against something that didn't exist, you know, and, and there was actually a bill for economic conversion to peaceful industries that was largely undone by uh, the congressman from Lockheed Martin, Newt Gingrich. Uh, they, 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 that danger of peace was a big threat to the Pentagon and the war industries and they undid it and they expanded NATO and they expanded military spending and they came up with a better danger than communism. It came up with a danger that can't end on them. That? Terrorism. Terrorism, yeah. Well, he is my misrepresentative as well, and I think a lot of the reason you go after these people is, you know, because they are human beings and they do hear you somewhere in the back recesses of their brain, but also because you uh, educate others in the process and you generate media attention to it. I'm sorry? I write him almost every day. So. I, yeah, well, I'm so not... I'm, I'm harassing the guy, but what else? <laughs> educating others. Right, yeah, but what step two? Yeah, well, I, I can go for hours and hours on the steps, so you tell me when to stop, but I, but I will, I promise, right now. Uh, so, um, you know, one, one thing I did uh, when Trump proposed this budget, which the Democrats immediately started shooting themselves in the foot over, convincing everybody it was a, it was a smaller budget and everything was being cut. And all the defenders of small budgets came out to rally for it and it was all a bunch of uh, nonsense because it was the exact same budget, but moving everything into the military. Uh, I, I drafted a, a petition with you know a resolution with all the whereas clauses, telling everybody all the facts they never get to hear from television or newspapers and we got 
tons of prominent people from different fields to sign it and publish it and got tens of thousands of signatures on it online and then we we started taking it to city councils and county boards and you know local governments and getting the Charlottesville City Council among them uh, but local governments around the country to pass the resolution we then took it to the US Conference of Mayors uh, and by this time we'd hooked up with other peace groups Code Pink and the US Peace Council and other groups that were passing these in other cities in various you know variations you know tweaked here and there um, and uh, New Haven Connecticut actually passed a version that required that the city hold public hearings with the head of every agency to discuss what they would be able to do if they had all the money that the people of New Haven send to Washington DC for all things war related and they've held those public hearings. Well, the U.S. Conference of Mayors passed three of all, three of these resolutions, different versions, including mandating, you know, instructing that every city that has a mayor, that you know, the, the membership of the U.S. Council of Mayor, Conference of Mayors, uh, hold these public hearings. You know, pass these resolutions and hold these public hearings. So you can now take to the Warrington board of whoever they are um, and, and say to them, uh, here is a resolution that's been passed in places around the country and that the US Conference of Mayors has said you should pass and you should hold a public hearing on the following topic. Um, you can also uh, go to your local government and say, did you know there are federal funds available for programs that study and begin economic conversion efforts, converting war industries in our district, in our town, our county, whatever, to peaceful industries. Um, I'm, I'm here to do the opposite of what everybody else is here for. I'm here to offer you money from the federal government. You know, I know the federal government is offering them free tanks and mine-resistant vehicles and you know bayonets, but you know this is you know actual cash, right? Not not uh, you know not you know, anti-aircraft missiles, you know. Uh, and so, there, so there's one thing you can do locally. You can also uh, do events locally that educate uh, a large number of people. And it's, it's not actually that hard, especially if you have a lot of time to organize, uh, you know, a bigger group than this one, especially uh, if you organize a friendly, civilized uh, debate uh, between a supporter of wars and an opponent of wars. Um, these are the events I, I do as much as I'm going to do in Philadelphia and that I do as much as I can because you reach new people. Um, but if you go to worldbeyondwar.org and you click on events, we've got speakers bureau, PowerPoints, videos, films, uh, activities, resources to hold you know educational events. Um, you can also come to events like the ones we're planning in Washington DC soon and network with with other people and get involved with other people um, in that way um, and we've got you know we've there are organized networks working on divestment if you want to get you know Warrington's public uh, in fund investments out of major weapons dealers uh, you know there's no reason that teachers uh, who, who do great work for the world should then have their retirement dependent on more people being killed in wars. You know, um, we have groups working on 
uh, helping others in countries around the world close U.S. military bases. Um, there are active campaigns in countries around the world that need support, especially from the, the greater Washington, D.C. area um, in, in educating and mobilizing and lobbying uh, and shutting down these bases so that when there are big nonviolent actions and people facing bulldozers, somebody here and especially somebody on Capitol Hill hears about it. Um, we you know, have, so, so there's all different angles being worked on that you can get involved in whichever you want to work on, um, you know, and whatever skills and whatever type of work you want to do, um, it's needed and there are ways to, to put it uh, to work. Um, yeah. Her, her question and your response goes, goes largely to bottom-up efforts, I mean, which, which can be incredibly powerful and, and certainly in this arena are needed, but I want to flip this with a kind of fanciful question. If the United States of America were somehow overnight uh, transformed into a absolute monarchy, and David Swanson were king, what, what, what would you do to bring about this kind of world without war in the I don't know how many of you know an author named William Bloom, uh, but you should if you don't, and uh, B-L-U-M, and he, he had an answer to this type of question. That I'll give you my own answer next, but I think his answer was very good, that he would, uh, uh, you know, on day one he would end all the wars and abolish the military, on day two he would issue apologies and proposals for cooperation and sign on all, all the treaties the U.S. is a holdout on, and day three he would be assassinated. Uh, so, but uh, I, I think, you know, the United States is, is in many ways a, a rogue nation, a holdout on more treaties and agreements than just about any other country, you know, and the sole holdout on things like the Convention on the Rights of the Child um, for despicable reasons, you know, and uh, I think, you know, that even if the United States had completely lost democracy or republicanism in within the United States, the first thing it ought to do would be to sign on to the international body of, of human rights, to the conventions on civil and political rights and on social and economic rights, to sign on to uh, full support of both the UN Charter and the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which is the law that banned war in 1928 uh, that I uh, referred to earlier. Um, and sign on to all the conventions against all the types of weapons, including nuclear weapons, uh, sign on to the International Criminal Court, uh, make it, you know, make the words, you know, there's, a, there's sort of this myth with a grain of truth that we've long been trying to make the words of the Declaration of Independence true, right? I think we ought to try to make the words of, of Robert Jackson at the Nuremberg trials true, where you know the claim that it's not victor's justice, that this should be applied to us as much as to the Germans. You know, we ought to try to make that true. We ought to join the rest of the world, and join the rest of the world on uh, real dangers, like the danger to the climate, uh, and, and lead the way. Um, you Is know. there any truth in 
statement that it was a marble or something to the effect of only when our arms are certain beyond doubt something under the rest of that goes. Can we be certain beyond only when they are sufficient beyond doubt can we be certain beyond doubt that they'll never be used. Now in this in this fictitious thing, which obviously is fanciful, you you suddenly are president around signing treaties and things. I, I'm, not, I'm not in any way dis, disparaging that. You know, we've got the North Korean threat. I mean, we've got a guy over there who's, who's doing this mono-mono thing where, and we suddenly come in and say, well, we're just disbanding arms or we're disbanding the military. Yeah, the that, that work, and I'm not even sure what I mean by work, but I mean, I, so, even if we tip the scales, even if even if the the U.S. government is suddenly transformed, I think it would be a very slight change uh, into an absolute monarchy uh, tomorrow. Uh, I don't think we we should erase history. Uh, you're talking about proceeding from actual world history through a different government beginning tomorrow. Uh, it, what we have today, what we're going to actually have tomorrow is the same government we're used to operating as if history didn't exist. Right? I mean, because the actual history uh, is that the United States went to the United Nations and lied to the countries of the world and said that it was stopping tanks in South Korea with Russians in them. Uh, and that Russia was trying to take over the Korean Peninsula for the cause of global communism, and that uh, a police action in the form of killing millions of people and bombing every building flat and you know, destroying North Korea and dropping uh, bugs and, and feathers uh, with, with bubonic plague and anthrax on them uh, onto North Korea was necessary to enforce the rule of law, and then refused to ever end that war to this day and refused to withdraw U.S. troops and has militarized that border and flies practice nuclear first strike bombing missions along that border to this day and puts more and more weapons into South Korea against massive resistance by the people of South Korea. And I have to listen to a senator this morning on C-SPAN say that the United States has to put all those weapons in and fly more practice bombing runs to bring North Korea to the table while North Korea says We'll come to the table as soon as you stop putting out more weapons in and running those. And, and the Washington Post says, falsely, nothing can bring North Korea to the table because they aren't human. You know. But one, one more thing, and I'll, and I'll let this go. And, and this comes, by the way, I mean, when you're asking questions like you did a while ago about if you didn't raise your hand, legal or illegal, I mean, what's your stance on this? I mean, my stance on it is just profound ignorance. I have no idea what the law says about war, and my, and my perspective on all of this is, I haven't written any books, I haven't read very many, I mean, is profound ignorance. And we're talking to a guy who, who admirably has, you know, devoted his life, I mean, to trying to I mean, educate on this and trying to figure it out. But my question is still, if you become the monarch tomorrow, I mean, you all of this stuff you've talked about, you, you inherit that, none of it goes away, you've got to operate in a situation where that is the history. Right. Well, I would operate on the basis of my understanding of factual reality, not on the basis of myths and propaganda, right? There is, 
one nuclear armed nation in the world that voted in favor of this process that's now creating a treaty that will ban the possession of nuclear weapons. You, won't, you would not believe me if I told you which one it was. Huh? Not Japan, which uh, thank goodness is not actually a nuclear armed nation, although it... No, no, but there is... North Korea, yes. North Korea. <laughs> yes, unfair. Un, un, yes, yes, unfair preparation. But yes, North, North Korea, when Bill Clinton, may he never rest in peace, whose presidency was an absolute catastrophe, actually did this right. And when Bill Clinton was president, there was actually an agreement between the United States and North Korea and South Korea to start making things better. And North Korea stopped its nuclear program for over a decade. It didn't have a nuclear weapon. It developed a nuclear weapon after the United States, under George W. Bush, completely shredded the agreement that both sides had largely complied with and put North Korea into a so-called axis of evil with Iran and Iraq and started threatening war on North Korea. North Korea said, we're going to develop a nuclear bomb. They now look at Libya, which got rid of its nuclear bomb and got bombed. They now look at Iran, which agreed to have no nuclear bomb and is threatened with being bombed. And they say, we need it. What we can't do without it. Now, I don't support that. I absolutely condemn it as evil and indefensible, but it's predictable. It's rational. It's understandable, right? Uh, the, uh, there's, uh, I, I, I want to say a few words, if you don't mind, about war being illegal because um, a, a guy that I've become friends with who's a, a law professor at Yale and another law professor at Yale who's also been a top lawyer at the Pentagon, uh, the two of them this week came out with a book uh, called The Internationalists um, and it looks at this treaty called the Kellogg-Briand Pact which banned war in 1928 uh, and it documents very well and impressively how the world was transformed in 1928. Before 1928, war was legal. Both sides of wars were legal. Almost every atrocity in war was legal. Conquest was legal. Colonialism, for capturing a country and making it a colony was legal. Looting, pillaging, arson as part of a war were legal. Uh, and in fact, all of these things were law enforcement if a country owed another country money or you know, was violating something another country wanted, it, its legal recourse was war, whereas economic sanctions were illegal. You couldn't get involved in such a legal bellicose dispute with something like economic sanctions. Uh, it, everything was turned on its head in 1928 by the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Uh, and uh, conquest virtually ceased and conquests that happened after 1928 were undone back to the date of 1928, the year of legality of possession of territories. The number of nations on earth multiplied several fold because it was now safe to have a small nation, right? You, you, you weren't, if you freed yourself from uh, you know, a colonizer, you weren't immediately going to be colonized by somebody else. Right? I mean, the whole world of law and nation states, they had to you know, rebuild the, after they built the UN uh, you know, building in New York with the number of seats in it. They had to you know, destroy it and build it with 
three times as many seats, you know, because uh, the world was transformed. And yet, because these Yale law professors are Americans, they write this book as if the Kellogg-Briand Pact has been totally complied with and war has vanished. And the biggest threats to war now are ISIS, North Korea, and the, the people of Crimea voting to rejoin Russia. Those are the big threats to war, you know, as if U.S. militarism hardly exists. So uh, I wrote a book about the Kellogg-Briand Pact uh, years ago, a much shorter book than theirs, uh, but at least more to the point and fairer, uh, that says we ought to actually hold this up as something to start complying with. Because the people in the 1920s who created that treaty that's still on the books that most countries are party to, that bans all war, wanted to ban all war and said we banned all dueling for individual disputes. And we didn't ban aggressive dueling and keep defensive dueling and philanthropic dueling. We banned the whole thing as barbaric. This is what we want to do with war. Right? So the Kellogg-Briand Pact, after, world, after its first uh, use, you know, it was the basis for the prosecutions in Nuremberg and Tokyo. After its first use, uh, it was immediately transformed into this general understanding that it only banned aggressive war. Uh, which the creators of it had known that as soon as you allow defensive war, every war is going to claim to be defensive. And when the UN Charter went beyond that and allowed any defensive war and any war the UN feels like authorizing, well then you got two loopholes that every single war is going to claim to have met, even though none of them do. Uh, and, and so going back to the total ban on war of the Kellogg-Briand Pact, uh, you know, it, it's, it seems radical to people who still believe in you know, in militarized defense. But you could believe in militarized defense in the United States and cut 90% of the military, and that step would lead to such cuts around the world that you would start understanding the possibility of non-militarized defense uh, and of total abolition. Um, but, you know, the, the, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, most people have never heard of the thing, People who have heard of it will tell you the most ludicrous reasons why it's no good uh, and, and worthy of mockery, starting with the fact that it was created before World War II and World War II happened. It's just a standard not applied to any other law in the history of the world, right? Where they ban drunk driving, some guy drives drunk, he can't say, well, therefore the law is invalidated, everybody gets to drive drunk, now that was a stupid law because I broke it. No, that's not how laws work except with the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which everybody says, well, there are still, you know, I mean, there's still murders and we have laws against murder, right? There's still wars, we have laws against war. We just pretend they don't count for the most ludicrous reasons, right? Uh, and so for people to tell you, that, you know, and this is the principled position of Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and so forth, that all the, you know, well-funded Western groups is that war is perfectly fine but every little predictable atrocity in the wars is a war crime. You know, there are not war crimes. War is a crime. Right? But, uh, you know, that's something that, I mean, even the United Nations now puts out reports saying that, that the drones have, have normalized war. War is now the norm. It's an institution created to abolish war. 
there's a, a billion, this, you want to talk about you know, top down, a billionaire doing something good. There's a Swedish billionaire now offering $5 million if you come up with the plan for United Nations 2.0, you know, the, the United Nations that works. Um, so we, World Beyond War certainly is sending in a, uh, an entry. Um, but uh, there is a need, I think, for a global institution that's, that's fair, that doesn't give the five biggest warmongers and polluters and weapons dealers veto over anything it wants to do, uh, and that fairly represents both nations and populations, you know, in roughly the way that, uh, that supposedly the Senate and the House in the U.S. were supposed to represent states and the public or some fraction of the public. Um, because uh, the, the population of the world is not represented anywhere um, and needs to be. Uh, but the idea that you can't enforce laws without using war as the tool for law enforcement uh, is long since out of date. You enforce laws uh, with moral sanction, with economic sanction, with membership privileges and, uh, and banishment from institutions and organizations uh, and with leadership by example, um, you know, not you know, leadership by whatever the opposite of example is. Yeah? It, it seems to me, too, that um, maybe underlying your question, Ed, uh, uh, is, the, is the myth that we are presently protecting ourselves from North Korea, or we're going to find a, a way along these warlike lines to protect ourselves. And, and if you step back a little bit and you look at it, we are on a disastrous path that is like running toward a cliff. And, and you're not sure whether there's another cliff over the left or the right, but you still think this is, a, this is suicide. And, and so we don't have to be perfectly clear or totally convinced or educated yet about the, the world beyond work plan or, or, or other plans about what's going to work. This is a dead end. And, and, and so, uh, it, and, and then besides that, it's illegal. <laughs> uh, and so if we, and, and, and that's part of the dead end. If we're going to continue to disregard the rule of law, and, and then we're uh, guaranteeing ourselves a society and a world that doesn't have any kind of order and cooperation. And um, it, it, so if if we all die in the process, what have we lost? Because we're, we're, we're condemned to death on the path that we're on. No, I think any, any kind of reform movement, innovation, anything that begins that brings about a radical change, or, or tries to bring about a radical change, the question is always, how do we know it will work? Well, what if it doesn't work? As if what we're doing now <laughs> works. I, but I'm, I'm still interested um, in, you know, um, King David, I mean, in that role that I described to you. Um, and this starts tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. I mean, would you then uh, disband the military, um, the United States military? Disband some of it? I mean, what, yeah, when what would you do? Abolition means abolition. I mean, it's not an unclear term. Uh, you 
I would not and could not uh, abolish it by next Thursday. Uh, I would uh, abolish it over a, a period of months and years, but uh, I certainly would. Uh, and if, I, I think you would have a hard time in Costa Rica or Iceland or anywhere else that has abolished their military, getting them to regret it. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, if we, if we had if we had a, a, a monarch with whatever limited intelligence, we would have different policies, right? If we had democracy, actual democracy, uh, by public referendum, governance by the public, we would also have wildly different policies than we now have, uh, and for the most part, better. Um, and if it were up to the public, you know, according to current opinion polls, and you know, not factoring in any imaginary, you know, propaganda campaign around the the referendum vote, uh, we would have massive cuts to the U.S. military, and we would have every year for the past many decades, uh, and we would have massive new investments in education, as we would have for many years, and in environmental protection, as we would have for quite a number of years still. So, um, you know, we could have, we wouldn't have to have, I, I by the way, I once collected a petition uh, with hundreds of prominent Davids uh, opposing destroying a Palestinian village to dig up, uh, you know, evidence of King David. Um, the, you know, whether we had, you know, a king or actual democracy, I mean, I would take a Congress chosen by darts at a phone book, you know, I think we would have dramatically improved policies over what we've got now, um, because what we've got now is, is, you know, nearly total corruption. And, and, and wouldn't it be the case if we cut military spending in half and we use that in the proper way that suddenly the world becomes a much safer place and you say, why not? This is the thing. If you were to go to Canada, and you know, imperfect and flawed as it might be, uh, you know, and, and say, not only are we all gonna move here when it gets too hot down there, but if if you all want to create anti-Canadian terrorist organizations around the world, and you want to get dictators in. East Asia threatening Canada, and you want the sort of you know prestige as the the chief enemy of evildoers around the world that the United States has. Well, here's here's a guide, right? You know, first you you got to arm yourself ten times over what you're doing now. This doesn't cut it. You've got to put bases and and ships and drones in the skies. You know, on a much bigger scale, you need to bomb at least a couple dozen countries. And you need to really start kicking in doors in some places with some, some Canadian occupations, Canadian-led. You know, if you want to generate this kind of hatred and blowback. Um, and, and then here's the, here's the real kicker to the deal is you're going to love this. Once you've generated that, you can spend even more money on even more weapons because you're going to need them to fight the anti-Canadian terrorists around the world. You trust us, we're doing this in the United States, it works. It's golden, nobody even questions it. You know. But the reality, of course, is that blowback is blowback, uh, and you don't have to create it. Uh, and you know, there are dozens 
of top U.S. military officials, commanders of, you know, heads, the directors of national intelligence, uh, leaders of occupations of Afghanistan and elsewhere, within weeks of their retirement, say this, say it's counterproductive, say you're generating more enemies than you're killing, say there's no military solution. I mean, just about every uh, recent president uh, who has proposed any military action has preceded it by explaining that there's no military solution, you know, and we're going to do something non-military plus a little something military. And then, of course, all they ever do is military, you know, so that, you know, NPR told me yesterday that uh, more sanctions on North Korea, which has been sanctioned for over half a century, can't possibly do any good, but there are no other options left. It's sanctions or, or bombing, obviously. There are no other choices. So what are you going to do? You know, this is, you know, this is what National Pentagon Radio tells you. But it doesn't, you know, it isn't true. It isn't reality. The people of South Korea impeached and threw out a U.S. puppet president. Prince, primary, you know, many issues, but first and foremost, they didn't want this new U.S. missile system put into South Korea that North Korea and China view as a threat of war. Uh, and what they do, they got a new president in who gets all kinds of pressure from Donald Trump and says, oh, okay, go ahead. And now the people in South Korea are out in the streets again, but the missiles are being put in South Korea. It, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a law of physics that puts those missiles in South Korea. It's a human choice. A bad one. Okay, so what you would do is negotiate. That's that's, that's or nothing. Yeah. That that's the realm you have. Yeah, I I mean when when people when you you protest you know drone wars for example and people say well aren't drone wars better than other wars and you know what would you have instead of the drone wars yeah my answer is nothing I would have nothing that would be much better you know but it, it, I wouldn't have a government and a foreign policy that does nothing you know I would have a government and a foreign policy that uh, engages in cooperation and aid and enforcement of the rule of law. Yes, to cooperate with North Korea on a peace agreement to finally end a war that ended over 60 years ago, uh, to demilitarize the border, to take U.S. weapons and troops out of South Korea, to cut back North Korean uh, militarization and end North Korea's nuclear program and end... Because of what we do, it will end there, is your theory. Well, it's not a theory if the 1990s happened, right? I mean, it, it, if, if what happens in the past is relevant to what can happen in the future, and if the fact that the U.S. and North Korea and South Korea could come to an agreement in the 1990s that just required, didn't require the U.S. to abandon a single weapon, undo its nuclear program in the least, you know, promise to abide by the non-proliferation treaty that it violates every day or anything of the sort, it just required the United States to stop threatening North Korea and to stop putting additional weapons into South Korea and additional troops into South Korea and to agree that South Korea and North Korea could talk to each other. That's all it required of the United States. It didn't require, you know, burning U.S. flags or, you know, bombing U.S. cities or, you know, anything horrible. Um, you know, if, if you're going to have 
a department that you call defensive. And you can get all sorts of cooperation out of North Korea just by scaling back a little of its offensive activities. You know, what's not to like? Well, you know, blame, blaming somebody for something doesn't eliminate blaming other people for it, you know. It's not as if North Korea sending missiles over Japan is a, is a noble and decent act because the U.S. does evil things. You know, this is what people bizarrely imagine that somehow blame is this finite quantity and you give it to somebody, nobody else gets it, you know. But yes, the U.S. is, U.S. is the, the aggressor, the, the force behind the division of the two Koreas, the force behind the, you know, the, the previous dictatorship in South Korea, the force behind the, the new construction of a massive Navy base for the U.S. Navy on Jeju Island uh, in the South China Sea, you know, for uh, South Korea and, uh, and Samsung. Uh, the, the, the force uh, behind the, the, the current tensions. The, the people of South Korea view it as a war, you know, as a cold war between the United States and North Korea, and they want no part of it. And they keep trying to get a South Korean government that will say no to the United States. And they got a president of South Korea for the first time ever who said no to the United States on anything for the first time ever. And it, did, and it lasted like a couple months. You know, um, but the the idea that the United States and South Korea, the governments and much less the people, are all on the same side and all want the same things here, and the U.S. is just supporting its poor little ally. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know. Okay. Um, for Jill Stein's cabinet, what position were you going to be? The Secretary of Peace. Uh, well, uh, to fill everybody else in just in case on things that you probably know, there was a push uh, many years ago to create a peace academy in the U.S. government as it has numerous war academies. And it evolved into uh, an institute called the U.S. Institute of Peace that has this... Devolved. Uh, devolved would be the better term, yes. Into the U.S. Institute of Peace, which has this big building next to the Lincoln Memorial that looks like it has either a dove or a brassiere on the top of it. And, and it was created with a board that includes the Secretary of So-Called Defense, the Director of the Central So-Called Intelligence Agency, and so forth. And you, you can go in the lobby and, and read you know, Lockheed Martin and all the big weapons dealers on, in the marble, you know, on the walls of the U.S. Institute of Peace. So we, so, so some people, you know, opposed it from the start, knowing it would be this Orwellian creature. Um, other people, you know, like to, you know, give it credit for the, for the few good things it does because it backs, you know, it funds some good academics and good researchers and good, you know, aid and, you know, so-called peace building programs in countries that the United States is not targeting at the moment. Uh, but if it's defunded by the Trump budget proposal, uh, it will have lived out its existence without ever having opposed a war. 
you know and, and so this is we had a school board member down in Albemarle County Virginia uh, years ago who said he would support a celebration of the day of the uh, the International Day of Peace September 21st as long as nobody got the wrong impression that he was opposed to any wars right so this is this is the US Institute of Peace you know worldview we're for peace but not we're not against any wars you know so there there therefore and and we had a meeting uh, we took we did a public petition and demand and rally and we got a meeting with the heads of the US Institute of Peace and the heads of some you know what I consider peace movement organizations organizations that oppose wars uh, and we discussed with them what they might do could they you know add someone who actually gave a damn about peace to their board or could they you know and, and they wouldn't do anything other than say they would set up a liaison to the peace movement which they didn't do um, but I asked the the director president I think is her title of the US Institute of Peace whether they could you know be for peace in Afghanistan you know they could stop you know like they, they were for things I agreed with, like the Iran nuclear agreement, but they're pushing war in Syria, war in Afghanistan, and so on. And I asked if they could be for peace in Afghanistan, and they said the same thing the, Pen the, the, the Pentagon would have said. You know, they have a peace pole, they have a peace monument in the Pentagon, they're for peace. They, every the war they fight is for peace. She said, war for peace, that's what we want. We're, we see multiple tools you can use to get to peace. And I said, is one of those tools war? And she said, well, yeah, sure. One of those tools is war. Right, so, you know, the, the, the propaganda we should not try to make come true is Woodrow Wilson's, you know, that you can have a war to end all wars. They've been trying that for a hundred years now. And they were trying it for centuries before that. Uh, you know, you, you have to get to peace through peace. Building, you know, on the mall cost uh, three hundred 
million dollars or something to make. Very expensive building. And it's totally government funded. They also accept private donations as they did from Lockheed Martin and some other people. But it's unfortunately it's a you know it's a it's a fake um, intermediary organization. It's supposed to actually play an intermediary role between my profession, between conflict resolution, and the government. But it spends most of its time representing the government to the to everybody else, not the other way around. Well, the other the only other thing I wanted to do that was really for thanking you was to ask you to say more. Um, well, we can talk about this another time about changing the, the culture. When you said we need a popular movement to change our culture, I totally agree with that. But it's it's a tall order, as you know. Yeah. And how you <laughs> how you change your culture when is you're dealing? I mean, some one of the things you do that what well, it made me think of oh, Uncle Tom's Cabin as a culture change uh, in the period pre-Civil War in the north, but not, not in the south. Uh, maybe they have all quiet on the western front after, after World War And I'm wondering, what, what could we do, aside from kind of lobbying and agitating, um, what could we do, especially maybe in the artistic field or in the narrative field that needs, that needs to? I mean, if you talk about North Korea, one of the things lurking behind people saying, well, you have to, you have no choice, but you, know, you have, to threaten them. have to threaten the North Koreans, is a Cold War narrative. I mean, you mentioned World War II and the Civil War. There's also a Cold War narrative that says that's how we won the Cold War, was by arming ourselves to the teeth, being prepared to use those weapons if we had to, and forcing the other guy to back down. And, and there's, so there's that macho, Cold War narrative, and the fact that, I mean, I've had people say to me, oh, you peaceniks, um, if we had listened to you, we wouldn't have, you know, we would have given up, given, given away the store to the Russians. Because you were telling us, don't use, don't use those nuclear weapons, they're gonna blow up in your face. Well, they didn't blow up. We did not have World War III, which you were predicting, we might have. Instead, we got a, resolution on favorable to the West of the Cold War. So that's a powerful narrative, even among people who don't know anything about the Cold War, don't remember it. Because I've had students even say, well, nuclear deterrence worked. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm, you know, so there's a lot of work to be done and you're doing, you know, I'm, a lot of a lot of the hard the heavy lifting on it now. So that's, I had a, I, I really, I, I'm, I'm sorry I've got to run because I've got a guy waiting for me downstairs. Um, but can you give a quick answer to that? Or well, I'd, anyway? I'd say Uncle Tom's Cabin is, is, is the book for slavery. Lay Down Your Arms is the book for war, which was the, 
novel by uh, the woman who inspired her friend, Alfred Nobel, to create the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, I think we need to travel. We need cultural exchange. It's much harder to hate people you've met. We need uh, to rework our entire culture uh, in ways that was happening in the 20s and 30s, in, in, in history books, in novels, in plays, in stories, in dramas, in uh, music. We have great musicians coming to our conference uh, in a couple weeks. Um, we need, uh, uh, when there is a great play or a great movie or a great book, we need to communicate that to everyone, which is why I spend a lot of time reviewing books and movies and, and TV shows you know, on websites like worldbeyondwar.org. Um, so when something like uh, War Machine, this, this Brad Pitt movie about Afghanistan that's on Netflix uh, and not in any theaters, uh, is you know is like the mash of yeah. uh, of Afghanistan, uh, which uh, didn't wait for Vietnam to mock Korea. You know, is it's actually out now when there's still some people who know the war in Afghanistan is still happening. Uh, you know that you know those things that are you know because I, I you know promoted six or eight great movies about drones that presented drones accurately as weapons of murder and counterproductive imbecilic uh, technology gone awry and then Hollywood produced this you know deceitful deceptive movie called Eye in the Sky and everybody saw that it was slicker yeah, and yeah horrendous uh, but this movie War Machine about Afghanistan is as slick and as famous cast as any Hollywood movie, uh, and yet it, you know, gets it more or less right. Um, so, you know, when those things happen, you gotta spread them around and, and tell everybody. What's the, war, what's the movie called? I think it's called The War Machine or something like that, but if you search for Brad Pitt Netflix, uh, you will certainly find it. I don't want to interrupt if there's further discussion, but I did want to thank you again. Thanks. Uh, it was wonderful. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, people who have to leave, you have to leave, but and I'm one of them. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, but um, very nice to see. Very nice to see you, and Samantha Board. Thank you all for coming. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys for coming. Show more respect to your dad now. Oh, okay. I don't. I don't know. Still might not be much. There should be limits there.